<clears throat> All right, last week of a short series called He Has a Name. We have this week, which is the last week of this series, and next week, Compassion Sunday, and then we start a big series in the book of Isaiah. So be excited about that. We've got a lot of things planned for the book of Isaiah. Get in a small group. If you're not in one, plug in. Be committed to coming every Sunday. Isaiah is going to be transformative. I really believe that. So before we get there, though, we have to do some work in this last series, He Has a Name. If you're just joining us, it's a series going through sort of the Hebrew Old Testament names of God. And the series starts, and its foundation is found in the Hebrew name of God, Yahweh, represented by four English letters, Y-H-W-H, that correspond loosely to four Hebrew letters, yod heh vah And in the original Hebrew, vowels weren't a part of the written language, so you just wrote it out like this. But it's pronounced most likely Yahweh. We can't be exactly certain how they pronounced it thousands of years ago, but pretty close to something like Yahweh. Now, in the Bible and in the world of the ancient Near East, the world the Bible was written in, names weren't just mere titles or things you called somebody. They were given to describe someone. They were supposed to reveal something about the character of the person. And Yahweh is used all throughout the Old Testament a couple thousand times, and it always takes upon this royal, kingly, sort of, I am the only one true God type of tone. You could see it in these passages. Isaiah 45, 22. God talking about himself. Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God, and there is no other. By myself I have sworn... For my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me, every knee shall bow, every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord, it's Yahweh, again, wherever you see the word Lord, all in caps in the Bible, that's the Hebrew word Yahweh, only in Yahweh it shall be said of me are righteousness and strength. So, God in the Old Testament makes this very exclusive claim that only at the name of Yahweh will every knee bow and every tongue is ultimately going to confess. That is done at the name of Yahweh. Here's another passage. Thus says the Lord, Yahweh, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord, Yahweh of hosts, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. One more. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11. Before me, no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am Yahweh. I am the Lord, and besides me, there is no Savior. So just a rough sampling. When Yahweh describes himself, his being, it's always in these exclusive terms. There's no God before me, nor will there be after me. I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no Savior. At the name of Yahweh, every knee will bow, and every tongue is going to confess. It's very royal kind of imagery. Also in this series, we've looked at how God takes other words and names and kind of slams them into his foundational primary name, Yahweh. So we've looked at like Yahweh Ra'ah, Yahweh my shepherd, and then there's Yahweh Rapha, Yahweh my healer, Yahweh Nisi, Yahweh is my banner. And today we're going to look at this last one, and this is probably my favorite name, Yahweh Yaira. If you grew up in church, you probably heard this pronounced as Jehovah Jaira. Does that sound familiar? Uh, a better pronunciation of that is Yahweh Yaira, but for some people, what you learn first is always what you like best. So if in your head you need to replace this with Je- Jehovah Jaira, that, that's fine. Now, the reason why we're doing this series is this. 
what you think about God, when you picture God, is incredibly important. A.W. Tozer, 20th century author and theologian, said, the most important thing about yourself is what comes to mind when you think about God. Now, whether that's the most important or one of the most important, we can all agree, it's incredibly important. When you close your eyes and picture what is God like, the thoughts, the images, the phrases, the things that come rushing into your brain, the feelings you get, all of those thoughts about God determine how you live. They have implications with how you live in the world, both in small things and in the big decisions of life. So what you think about God, what God is in your mind, is of utmost importance. Today we're looking at Yahweh Yaira, God will provide, Yahweh will provide. And to truly understand and unpack this name, we have to go to the story of the Bible that this is found in. And the story that this is found in, in the Bible is a story in Jewish tradition called the Akedah. And the Akedah literally means the binding. But in specific, we're talking about the binding of Isaac. And it's this crazy story of Abraham being told by God to go and bind Isaac and sacrifice him. And, it, and if you're new to the church, you haven't heard this story before, this is awesome because this story should be shocking. It should make you kind of say, what in the world is going on? Sometimes when you grow up in the church, I've been a Christian a long time, some of the stories that are meant to kind of be like shocking, they get normalized. This is a bizarre and crazy story. Abraham is told by God to kill his son. The story in Jewish tradition is called the Akedah. Now, in order to truly understand this story, there's one piece of important context that we have to go over. The binding of Isaac, the Akedah, is found in Genesis chapter 22, but the key piece of context is found in Genesis 12. Now the Lord said to Abram, this is Abraham, go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. This is called the Abrahamic covenant, but it's, it's essentially a promise made by God to Abraham. And the promise says to Abraham, you're going to have a great name, you're going to have a great nation, you're going to have a great people, and in you, through your people, through your descendants, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed. The key Hebrew word that's used at the, in this first line, it says, God, Yahweh, tells Abraham to go from. It's a Hebrew phrase, go from, lech lecha. It's much more powerful in Hebrew. It's more than just kind of go out or go from. This is a sort of like, turn your back towards, leave behind everything. Abraham isn't a follower of God. He's a pagan. He lives in a certain land. He has family and friends. And God says, leave everything you know, your religion, your gods, your family, your friends, go out and follow me. Lech lecha, leave it all behind. And Abraham does. And there's this beautiful promise attached that through Abraham's descendants, through his children, God is going to bless all the families of the earth. This is the context for what takes place in Genesis chapter 22, the Akedah. Akedah story starts off after these things. What are the things? Well, between Genesis 12 and 22, Abraham has tons of adventures. He does good things. He does some bad things. He's faithful at times. Sometimes he's unfaithful. But he eventually has a son. He names the son Isaac. And Isaac begins to grow up. And this is where the story picks up and where we pick up today. After these things, 
God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains on which I shall tell you. Again, if you've never heard this story before, this, this should be like crazy. It would be really awesome is like if you're just checking out Christianity and some of your coworkers said, trust me, they seem nice, but they're crazy, and this is the first story you hear. I mean, this would be perfect. There's three things going on in the text. I'll call them three Hebrew highlights for us to go over real quick. Remember, the author of Genesis, Moses, and the authors of, of all of the biblical stories, they're master storytellers. They do things on purpose. They highlight and, spot, highlight and spotlight and accentuate things. They, they draw your attention to things. So you have to, you have to look at it as if this is a beautiful storyteller pointing things out to you on purpose. And there's three sort of Hebrew highlights that I want to show you from this, this text really quick. First off, it says, verse 22, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham, and he said, here I am. Hebrew phrase, hinani. If you were here for week one, you know that Moses, when called from the burning bush, his response was, here I am, hinani. This is sort of the fundamental posture of people who are humbly responding to God. When God calls your name, how are you to respond? Lord, here I am. What, what would you have of me? This phrase, here I am, will play a, a key role in the narrative flow and structure of this story. So there's, there's going to be three Hinanis in this story, and, and they're turning points of the story. And in fact, they're the, the only thing Abraham says in this story. They're kind of, there's like this haunting and harrowing silence that takes place from Abraham, where he just responds with these short little phrases. Here I am, Hinani. Verse 2, he said, God says, take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah. And there's this kind of, again, master storyteller. There's, there's a rhythm, there's a cadence, there's a repetition here. Do you, do you see it? Do you feel it? It's not just take your son and go and sacrifice him. It's take your son, your only son, whom you love. This thrice kind of repetition. Take your son, your only son, whom you love. The word for love here is a Hebrew word, achav. It is the first instance where this word is used in the Bible. This is incredibly important. The first time the word love is used in the Bible, it is used to describe the love that a father has for his son. Take your son, your only son, son whom you love, the beloved one, and go to the third Hebrew highlight, go to the lech lecha. When Abraham was given the promise, he was told to turn your back and go forward, leave it all behind and go forward and trust me. And Abraham listens, but remember the context of Genesis 12. There was a promise attached. Um, go, go forth, and I'm going to do this great name, great people, nation, in you all the families are going to be blessed. It is really easy to be obedient when there's instant reward around the corner, right? I mean, even, let's be real, yeah, even dogs do that. Like, you can have a disobedient dog. You know, Skippy, come here. Come here, come here. Bring out a little treat. 
That dog runs. All of a sudden, this disobedient dog, it's like, how do you know what come here magically means all of a sudden? It's, it's the promise of reward. So in the first instance, Abraham is, is promised something. Go forth, and I'm going to bless you. In this encounter, the command to go forth is not met with, with anything, not a promise. If anything, there, there's this consequence. Go forth and sacrifice your son, which is actually a way of saying go forth and destroy the original promise. Because God was told that Isaac is the, the true son in whom the promises are going to be fulfilled. Go forth, kill your son, destroy the promise. No, no reward on the other end, just listen to me, go do it. So Abraham rose early in the morning, saddled his donkey, and took two of his young men with him and his son Isaac. And he cut the wood for the burnt offering and arose and went to the place which God had told him. On the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Now, if, if you're like me when you're reading this story, you're going, at what point does someone tell Abraham, you're crazy? Or at what point does Abraham tell himself, I'm crazy, right? If any of you, I hope so, if any of you heard a voice that you thought was God telling you to kill anybody, you got to say, I can't be trusted. I'm crazy. And, and so, so you have to realize, why is, why is this story in the Bible and why is Abraham not going like, I, I can't trust my, the voices in my head or there's no way God would ask me, ask me to kill my son? Well, it's the context, in the ancient Near Eastern world, this is not a bizarre request. It's not. Virtually every single people group on the face of, of the earth at this time sacrifices things. And they do things to, to honor and to respect and to worship, but they also sacrifice things to appease angry gods. And so let's say there was a famine in the land and there's not enough food. What do people do? A bunch of people get together and they sacrifice some goats and say, God, please, in the famine, we love you, we worship, we, we fear you, we adore you. Uh, in this famine, let the rains and food come. And, and if there wasn't a response to the prayer, you don't kill more goats, you, you up it, you up the ante. You go, okay, we're going to go bring some of our best cattle, some of the best we have, we're going to bring it before the gods and sacrifice them. And if that doesn't end the famine, then you bring your very best thing. And there's tons of evidence all from the ancient world that would say the thing that, that people would kind of sacrifice at the climax would, would be the firstborn child, usually the firstborn son. So in our minds, to think God is asking you to sacrifice your son or anything is crazy talk. In the historical context, it's not crazy talk, it's actually commonplace. The question for Abraham is not, would a God ask me to make sacrifice? The question for Abraham is, I thought this God was different. This God, Yahweh, called me out. He gave me a promise. Abraham's been walking with this God for a few decades at this point. Abraham is probably telling himself, I know this God. He has been a faithful God. He is a good God. He has never wanted to, to bring me harm. He has been true to his promises. Is this God, is Yahweh different than the other gods or is he just like the rest of them? 
Now you have to put yourself in his shoes again. A little bit of historical detail. Abraham was last in a place called Beersheba, and now he's been told to go to Mount Moriah. That's 50 miles. It's three days' journey. And so this just isn't some spontaneous, go do this and you've got five seconds to respond. This is 50 miles, three days with this haunting thoughts. I mean, this is psychological trauma. This is pain and agony. This is hard three days. These are hard 50 miles. This is gut-wrenching, soul-piercing, heart-tearing pain and agony, 50 miles. Abraham brought some servants, but make no mistake about it, Abraham walks this path alone. He and he alone will drink from the bitter waters of the bitter request. The first night, picture them around a campfire. In the modern world, we just do this like when it's camping time or sometimes in the backyard, but this is, this is normal. It's a normal night. Abraham, a few of his servants, his workers, and his boy Isaac there, and they're around the campfire. And you have to picture uh, Isaac being like any, any dude, any young, young dude. It's like he's just throwing more wood in the fire, making it bigger and bigger and bigger. And so he goes and gets some more wood. And at some point, Abraham knows in his mind, my son's going and get, getting more and more of this wood. And this wood that he's carrying is the very wood that I'm supposed to use for the burnt offering. This is the very wood that after I kill my own flesh, that I burn and give up to God. You can imagine Abraham reflecting on good times around the campfire, better times, when there wasn't this request and this demand, there was probably countless nights where Abraham would pull Isaac in close to his arm and say, son, come, come, come to your dad. Come, come rest your head on my shoulder. Pull him in close. And, and he'd retell stories of, of adventures they had and retell story of a God faithfulness in the past. And he would tell Isaac, God, uh, Isaac, do you know how good our God is? Do you know Yahweh? He is faithful. He is good. He is, he is kind to us all of the time. There's probably times where he'd, he'd ask his son to lay back and say, son, look to the stars. C- can you number the stars, Isaac? And Isaac would respond with laughter. No, no, dad, there's no way. There's way too many. And Abraham would say, that's right, son. Do you know that God said our people, our family, our descendants will outnumber even the stars in the sky? He made us that promise, son. He's a good God. He's a faithful God. Isaac's name in Hebrew means laughter. There's no laughter around the fire on these nights. These are three hard nights. These are 50 miles, 50 miles of gut-wrenching, heart-piercing, soul-tearing pain and agony. After the three days and the 50-mile journey, the text says in the last line, verse 4, on the third day Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place from afar. Then Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it on Isaac, his son. And he took in his hand the fire and the knife. So they went out, both of them, together. Several interesting things going on. Abraham said to his young men, stay here with the donkey. I and the boy will go over there and worship and come again to you. You've got to be asking yourself the question, does, is Abraham like lying to his servants, or does he have a cognitive dissonance? 
Uh, does he believe some, something isn't going on? He knows what he's going to do. He's taking his kid up the mountain, but Abraham says, no, 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 me and the boy go up this mountain to worship, and we will return to you. I believe he says this, and I'm convinced he said this, and the New Testament actually clarifies this, that Abraham believed that even if God made him go through with the knife to the neck, God would resurrect his boy and that he would come down the hill with his son. That's what Abraham believed. There's an interesting take from something called the Midrashim. The Midrashim are basically kind of Jewish um, teachings, preachings, or quick lessons on stories in the Old Testament. And in commenting on, on this story, one, one of the texts actually says, Isaac carries the wood upon his back up the mountain like a condemned criminal carries his cross. Abraham says, me and the boy are going up. We're going to go worship, and we're going to come back down. And Isaac said to his father, my father, and he said, here I am, Hinani, my son. He said, behold, the fire and the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? Abraham said, God will provide himself the lamb for a burnt offering, my son. So they went, both of them, together. The first time God calls out to Abraham, Abraham says, Hinani, here I am. The second time in the story, the second time Abraham addresses the boy, probably voice quivering, hands shaking, he looks his son in the eyes and says, here I am, son, here I am. And then the haunting question from Isaac, I, I, I see the fire in the wood, but, but where is the lamb? Abraham says, God is going to provide a lamb. Verse 9. When they came to the place of which God had told him, Abraham built the altar there, and he laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid on him, laid him on the altar on the top of the wood. Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. Now we have to pause here because most of us, especially if you grew up going to like children's church and you got children's picture book Bible. There's an image you have in your head right now. And most of the time when we picture this story, we picture Abraham leading up a very young boy, like between ages five and eight, maybe nine or ten. Like in 90% of the children's books, he's, he's a, it's a pretty young boy going on. Now, when we look at the timeline and the chronology of the book of Genesis, um, we can have estimates for how old Isaac is. Some scholars who prefer an early, like an, a younger Isaac, they make a really strong case for a young version of Isaac. But the young version of Isaac isn't as young as you think. The youngest this child could possibly be is, what do you think? 16, 17, 18, 19, 20 years old. The oldest Isaac could probably be is late 20s, early 30s. Now, why is this incredibly important? This is not a young child who's being led up, being tricked and deceived and manipulated, and his dad's just like, oh, there's going to be a lamb. Just trust me, there's going to be a lamb. And then when the boy doesn't know it, the knife gets him. This is a man. And by the way, don't picture like a modern-day 16-year-old. 16-year-olds in the ancient world, they were full-grown men. They had been working full-time jobs for like three, four years at this point. 
Abraham is an old, old, old man. That's the point of the story. Which means Isaac could take Abraham. Isaac could be faster than Abraham. So at a certain point, when Isaac is being laid down upon this altar, he goes, wait a second. There's, okay, Dad, you're starting to bind me up now. I, I could run away. I could take you. Now, why is this incredibly important? This act of worship is not against the will of Isaac. This is in accordance and alignment with the will of Isaac. I have no idea what's going on in this guy's head, but I do know this. Isaac knows what's going on, especially at the point where he's getting bound up and tied down or on the altar. He knows, but he also knows this. I trust you, Dad. I trust the God we've worshipped since the day I was born. You are a good father, and he is a good God. I have no idea what's about to take place, but not my will in this moment. Your will, my father. And if you were reading this story for the first time, you have an advantage if this is the first time you've heard this story, because at this point in the story, the tension is building and building and building. This is like, if you've ever seen a good like horror scary movie, like, the, 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 the plot is thickening and thickening and the tension's building, building, building. And if it's a really good movie, there's a point where you're on the edge of the seat and like you almost stop to breathe. And then when you finally find the, like, the tension release, he goes, <sighs> Then Abraham reached out his hand and took the knife to slaughter his son. But the angel of the Lord called to him from heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, he said for the third time, Hinani, here I am. He said, do not lay your hand on the boy or do anything to him, for now I know that you fear God, seeing you have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, him was a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered it up as a burnt offering instead of his son. Interesting note, the story wanted you to picture what? A lamb. They wanted you to picture... A little, a, a little lamb. We could talk with rams, a male lamb. The point is they're trying to get you to emit a picture of something. And something else is provided. Verse 14, so Abraham called the name of the place, the Lord, Yahweh, will provide, as it is said to this day, on the mount of the Lord, Yahweh, it shall be provided. Which is really interesting, because if God had just provided in that way, I would have named that place God has provided or God just provided, or God provides. I would name that mountain something in the present or past tense. But Abraham says, on this mountain, on this very mountain, Yahweh will provide. And the angel of the Lord came to Abraham a second time from heaven and said, by myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this and have not withheld your son, your only son. I will surely bless you and I will... Surely multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and on the sand that is on the seashore, and your offspring shall possess the gate of his enemies, and in your offspring shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because you have obeyed my voice. Now, oftentimes when people look at stories in the Old Testament, they just isolate them, and they try to come up with some principles from the story. And if you do that with this story, you'll probably come up with some nice principles that are true, but are still missing the point. 
For instance, you may say, the story of, of Isaac and Abraham teaches us that we should trust God. Should we trust God? Yes, of course, that's true. But, but that's not the point here. Or you can say, uh, if, if, you, if you trust God in hard times, you'll, you'll be found faithful, and that's a good thing. Again, true. I've even heard, though, and this is really bad, something that says along the lines of, the story of Abraham and Isaac teaches us that if you obey God, he'll never ask you to give up what you love most. Which I can guarantee you there's probably people in this room who've had to experience God pulling them away from things they love most. But you have to understand, stories in the Old Testament aren't isolated. They can't be isolated. There's a much bigger story going on. And in the story itself, it wants you to see that. There's all this unresolved tension. There's like leftover questions. Why did the, why did the author put such emphasis on a lamb, and then all of a sudden there's a ram with his horns caught in the thickets? Why Mount Moriah? Why did God ask Abraham to do a three-day's journey and go to a specific mountain? Why 50 miles away? What's up with that location? Why not name the place the Lord has provided? Why is it the Lord will provide in the future on this mountain? And why, in order to prove Abraham, did it have to test Abraham, did it have to be his son, his only son, his beloved son? There's all this like literary tension. In addition to the literary tension, there's historical tension. Um, in the Mishnah, it's a second century Jewish document, there was a certain prayer that you would pray in times of distress. So let's say there was a famine in the land again, and you want God to provide food and water for the land. The, what, you, what you would pray in times of severe distress and turmoil, you would pray this. May he who answered Abraham on Mount Moriah answer you and hearken this day to the sound of your cry. In addition, the Akedah, the story of the binding of Isaac, is read every single year for the Jewish people, both in Jesus' day and for most religious Jews to this day. The Akedah, the story of the binding of Isaac, is read on the second day of Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is a part of a lead-up to a Jewish holiday called Yom Kippur. So before Yom Kippur, there's ten high holy days, and there's this build-up and lead-up. Rosh Hashanah, you read the story of Abraham sacrificing Isaac, and you begin this lead-up to the holiest day in the Jewish calendar, this 10-day lead-up to Yom Kippur. Yom Kippur is the most holy day in Jewish thought. Yom Kippur is the day where there's a, a ritual done that signifies and symbolizes something. What takes place on Yom Kippur is this incredible ritual where the high priest goes into the temple of God, the holy of holies, and it is said on that day that all of Israel's sin for the entire year hangs in the balance, and the priest goes before God representing all the sins of the entirety of the people for the previous year, and he, he makes this, this sacrifice and ritual before God, and on the day of atonement, Yom Kippur, it is said that God then at that moment forgives all of the sins of all of his people for the entire previous year. Now, year after year after year after year, this story is read. And it's read in lead up to the day where God looks at all the sins of all of his people for the previous year and then forgives. 
This takes place in Jerusalem on the temple. Now, I want to tell you the story of a different son. This is a different son, but he's a descendant of Abraham. He's a descendant of Isaac. I'll tell you the story of a, of a boy named Yeshua. You know him as Jesus in English. This Yeshua, this Jesus, was born of a virgin. His father was Joseph. The prophet Isaiah describes his upbringing like this. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows, acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hid their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. In other words, this, this boy, this man of sorrows, was nothing special in the world's eyes, meaning when he walked through the streets of Jerusalem, no one noticed. At roughly the age of his early 30s, late 20s, this Yeshua, this Jesus, would begin his earthly ministry, and he would begin doing this by going to get baptized by another prophet named John. And in John 1.29, this is recorded. The next day, John saw Jesus coming to him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Upon this baptism, the Gospel of Mark informs us that a voice comes from heaven. The fabric that separates heaven and earth opens up, and a voice from heaven speaks, You are my beloved Son. With you I am well pleased. The boy becomes a man, is baptized, begins his ministry, and is preaching in northern Israel and then towards the end of his life in southern Israel, in Jerusalem. And he preaches like no one's ever preached before. He teaches like no one's ever taught before. He captures the hearts, minds, and imaginations of both sinner and saint. He does acts of mercy and compassion that literally redefine what mercy and compassion actually are. It's like you have to rewrite the dictionary. And he continues to do these things, and all these wonderful, amazing things are happening, but in a very short matter of time, the tides of popular opinion turn against the young man. And the same voices that came to him for mercy and compassion, wanted him to be the king of Israel, those same voices would cry out, crucify this man. Crucify him, we want him dead. He is not our king. The night before Jesus faces torture and crucifixion, he prays to his father, now, we don't have the entire prayer recorded in Scripture. We have bits and pieces. But, I, but, but from the bits and pieces that we have, we can sort of reconstruct what's going on. Jesus, this son, prays to his father and says, God, I know you are good. I know you are faithful. I know you love me. You are good all of the time, but I know what awaits me. I know the torture. I know the flogging. I know the nails. I know the cross, and I don't want to walk that path. But Father, in the midst of my will, I want you to know I trust you. And I say to you, my Father, if it's possible, let this cup pass from me, nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. And Jesus handed over, horrifically tortured and crucified. The Gospel of John describes the lead up to the crucifixion like this. So they took Jesus and went out, bearing his own cross to the place called the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There, they crucified him. 
Golgotha, like it says in Aramaic terms, it means place of the skull. It's located outside of the city walls of Jerusalem. So in Jerusalem is the temple, the place where the story of the Akedah is read year after year after year, the place where the ritual for Yom Kippur is done year after year after year. And right outside of that temple, outside of the city walls, Jesus is crucified. We know these hills as the Jerusalem hills or Mount Zion. But there's one other place in Scripture where it's called something different. It only occurs once where Jerusalem or the hills of Jerusalem or Mount Zion is called by a different name. And it appears in a random location, 2 Chronicles chapter 3, verse 1. Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord, house of Yahweh, in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where Yahweh had appeared to David his father at the place David had appointed on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. David builds the temple on Mount Moriah, the same place a father was told to sacrifice his son. But this is the story of a different son and a different father because the story of Abraham and Isaac isn't about Abraham and Isaac. It's about a different father and a different son. God stops Abraham, and Abraham names the place God himself will provide on this very mount. And what God would never ask humanity to do, God himself does. Giving up the true lamb of God for the sins of the world, laying down his life not to crush his enemies, but to save him. Why does God do all of this? It's very complicated, but at the same time, it's very simple. The most popular verse in the Bible probably summarizes it best. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world but in order that the world might be saved through him. Jesus is the lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. There's something more going on here. At the beginning of this series, I told everyone, Yahweh is the name of God. All throughout the Old Testament, time after time after time after time, God's name is Yahweh. And then I asked the question, why don't we start calling God Yahweh? And I said, you have to wait till week four to find out. Well, there's a reason why we don't come to God with the name of Yahweh anymore. I showed you some verses where Yahweh would talk about himself in the Old Testament at the start of this teaching. Isaiah 43, 10 through 11 Yahweh says, before me no God was formed, nor shall there be after me. I, I am Yahweh, I am the Lord, and besides me there is no Savior. What did the gospel writers, the first followers of Jesus, go around saying about Jesus? He is the one true Savior, King of kings, Lord of lords. Listen to Isaiah 44, 6. Thus says the Lord, thus says Yahweh, the King of Israel, I am the first and I am the last. Besides me, there is no God. Last page of the Bible, the book of the Revelation, Jesus' final words. Jesus speaking of himself. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one of you for what he has done. I am the Alpha and I am the Omega, the first and the last the beginning, and the end. Yahweh says of himself in Isaiah, I am the first and the last. Besides me, there is no other. There is no God. Jesus, at the closing of the book of Revelation, at the closing of our Bible, says, it's me. I 
am the Alpha, the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Yahweh says of himself, Isaiah 45, Turn to me and be saved, all the ends of the earth, for I am God and there is no other. By myself I have sworn, for my mouth has gone out in righteousness, a word that shall not return. To me every knee shall bow, to me every tongue shall swear allegiance. Only in the Lord Yahweh it shall be said of me, our righteousness and strength. Only in the name of Yahweh will every tongue confess, every knee is going to bow. Paul the Apostle in the book of Philippians chapter 2 upon retelling the story of the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus, says this. By the way, Paul had the Old Testament memorized. He knows at the name of Yahweh, every tongue will confess and every knee is going to bow. Philippians 2, 9 through through 11. Therefore, God, the Father, has highly exalted him, Jesus, and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. What you know in part in the Old Testament is made full in the new. The ushers can go ahead and start passing out communion. The ultimate question then, and the ultimate question of this series, what is God like? And we've gone over this for four weeks. God is like a shepherd. He's like a healer. He's like a a faithful husband. Yahweh Ra, God is my shepherd. And those are all good pictures and thoughts that every single person in this room needs to have in their mind. But there's one image you need to have above a shepherd, before a healer, before any of those other images. When you picture God, you ask the question, what is God like? God is like Jesus. God is Christ-like. When you picture God, picture Jesus dying on a cross on your behalf. When you picture God, picture Jesus resurrecting from death on your behalf. If you want to know what God looks like, if you want to know what it would be if God came to earth and walked around, you look at Jesus. Why? Because God did come to earth and walk around. And he came and gave every last ounce of strength he has in order that we might be saved. What is God like? He's he's Jesus. He's like Jesus. And Jesus now has the name which is above all names. And there is no other name outside of Jesus by which a man can be saved. Jesus is it. He's the bread of life, the door, the way, the truth, the life. What is God like? He's, he's like Jesus. So when you picture God, you picture Jesus because God really did come to earth and he died on a cross for us in order that we might know him. So we take communion and transition into worship. Um, we remember that the two elements, the, the bread and the wine, stand in place for something. The bread stands in place for the body of Jesus broken and the cup represents the blood of Jesus spilt on our behalf. It represents the story of a different son and a different father. God tells no to Abraham, but he himself goes there.
the mission of prayer that you pray in times of great distress is. May he who answered Abraham on Mount Moriah answer you and hearken this day to the sound of your cry. Because we have Jesus, we rephrase that. We say it like this. May you know that the God who answered Abraham on Mount Moriah has answered and responded to your greatest need and heard the sound of your cry. Because friends, life is filled with a lot of problems and a lot of pain, but God has already provided for our biggest problem, our separation from God, our rebellion from God, our sin, our own hearts, ourselves, and he gave it all. So let's remember his sacrifice as we partake of the bread. And let's remember that he didn't ask for the bloodshed of humanity, but he sent his son, Jesus, to shed his blood for us on our behalf. Father God, as we transition into worship, I pray that our understanding of you would, would begin to, to grow, and that, that when we picture you, we see Jesus more and more. We thank you that you sent him to come to earth to save us, to seek us out. The good shepherd found the lost sheep, and you brought us into the flock, into the fold. And I pray right now for all the people in our communities, our friends and families who are currently not listening to the voice of the shepherd, that you would speak loudly to them, that you would draw them in. I pray that you would give this church a passion for evangelism, a passion for, for telling people about the work of your son, and may more sheep be added day by day by day. We pray all of these things in the name that is above every name, the only name that I know that can save. It's in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.